Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. Joining us for a look at science this week is Wendy Zuckerman. Wendy, good evening. Welcome back to Nightlife. Thanks for having me. Great to have you with us too. Now, first up, human composting, the environmentally friendly death care option, as it's called. Well, there are really two options, aren't there, when it comes to what you do with dead bodies. They, you burn them or bury them. But here's a third, yeah. here's a third option. Exactly. And it's sort of funny. We used to think of cremation as the environmentally friendly option, but it's really not. We're taking all of the carbon inside us, mm-hmm. putting it up into the atmosphere, which for anyone who cares about climate change, which is more and more of us, it's not the way that people want their sort of last move to go, uh, which is why we're starting to see all these greener options being available, including human composting, which is having a real moment in the United States. Just this week, Illinois Mm. has considered whether to make it legal there. And there's pushes in Australia to do it as well. Okay. So you see, (laughs) when I think of compost, I, I know one of the cardinal rules of compost is that you mustn't put the remains of your lamb roast into the compost because you can't put meat in compost. Yes. So, uh, trying to stay delicate here, Wendy. What are, what's going on here? We we can't exactly stick Uncle. We can't stick Uncle Ken in the compost bin. That's right. So, what these entrepreneurs and researchers in the United States have basically worked out is how you can put Uncle Ken into the compost. So, what we know for anyone who does composting at home mm. is. What's happening there is that the microbes, that's mostly bacteria, but also a little bit of fungi that live on the veggies and in our environment, they're the ones that are basically doing the work of turning your carrots into beautiful soil. And so in order to make human composting work, you just have to work out how to get microbes that are in our bellies and on us to start breaking us down to create compost, not just to create. Oh, okay. So, because, I mean, people would say, hang on, you're talking about the body just rotting and, gee, that's that's foul. No, exactly. Now, composting is, is a different chemical process and one of the most fascinating things about it is so when things rot, they start to smell and that's because you've actually encouraged a bunch of bacteria, like bacteria that, that love living without oxygen, that's what's happening often with rotting. With compost, you want to encourage bacteria that love oxygen. Uh And then they create not a smelly substance, but rather this beautiful smelling substance. And so when I was living in America, I actually got to visit one of these human composting sites and Uh my hand in human composting. Hey, Wendy, 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 what? And... (laughs) All in the name of science. Mm. Um, And it smells like a rainforest. And the reason that's happening is because the microbes, the bacteria that are in that soil, they're the ones that are pumping out this beautiful smell. And so so, what do we put, how does, how do they compost people? Tell me, tell me how they do it. Okay. So number one cardinal rule for composting is you need to have the right balance of carbon and nitrogen Mm. and You and me, whether we are alive or dead, we are nitrogen rich. Mm -hmm. So what they have to do is they have to sort of balance that out with a bunch of carbon rich stuff. So think wood chips, alfalfa, straw, it's Uh full of carbon. So that's step one. Then the rest is pretty basic. We need moisture, Mm -hmm. adds water. You need oxygen, as I talked about. So a vent Mm -hmm. is nice, some holes. 
Um, and then you monitor it to make sure that you're encouraging the right kind of What are your of compost people in, though? I mean, a plastic bin, in other words. Uh, it's, uh, they like to call it, you know, polyethylene. It's a, not polyethylene. It's a, it's a, it is kind of a plastic. You need a, a, a vessel that is going to store a lot of heat because you want to encourage mm-hmm. one, of, one of the entrepreneurs in this space said, the more heat you get, that represents the happiness of the microbes. So the, the hotter it gets up to a point, the the better your compost is, the more microbes you have doing the more work in order to get that corpse into soil as soon as possible. So, and yeah, you want a vessel that's gonna gonna capture heat. Um, but it is basically you can think about it like a like a big box, and then they put the those carbon rich materials, the mm-hmm. alfalfa sawdust, the corpse, more carbon rich materials. Make sure it's moist enough. They they mix it around. And they seal it up, do they? Presumably, and seal it up and seal it up exactly. But it's got and holes then, in it, so you can. It's got air, air can get through. And then, how long does it take for the body to decompose? It takes it between sixty to ninety days. Which, Is that all? Is that all? That's right. When you think about how long it takes for a body to decompose in yeah. nature, I mean, it really depends on the environment and the kind of soil. But you know, it could take years. Oh, years! Yes, it can take many years. So, in, so yeah. in two to three months. You say you end up with a product, but you run your hand through, which is human remains, but it's uh, it smells like it smells like fresh soil. Yeah, I would never have known. And the the only thing that isn't decomposing with that fast is um, sorry, I, I isn't turning into compost. I should say that fast is um, is the big bones. The in big, our body. Yeah, like your femur, your hip, your hip bones, and your yeah, your thigh bones. Exa- mm. Exactly. It takes microbes a little bit of time to get through through that, and so to speed that process up, what these companies are doing is at around thirty days, they often most of the body is gone and turned to soil, and then they they pick out the big bones and then crunch like crack them up in in basically okay. it's what we use for um for cremation oh so they, they incinerate those bones yeah, yeah they, mm. they're incinerating it and crunching it up in what's called a cremulator and then they put it back into, into the, box. the vessel so that then the microbes can have another go at it so can and, you come can you go along and visit after three months and take ken, uncle ken home in a couple of sacks of good compost yeah in these big burlap bags of compost really and yeah and it's um wow i mean you could you could only imagine that some of the stories that we were told were of people taking these burlap bags home and then because you're you're taking them home in your car and then sort of putting the seatbelt over the burlap bag. Yeah, um, gives a whole or, new whole new meaning to blood and bone, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it sure does. It's a, it's not because then you could take that 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 soil home and you can grow a tree with it in your backyard mm. potentially, or you could use it to help sort of damage soil on a totally different land. Um, the only thing that's not recommended is you don't use it on your veggie patch. How many so people you... are doing this, do you, do you reckon, in the States? Hard to know. I mean, but... it's now legal in New York, California, right. Colorado, as I mentioned, Illinois will probably fall next. Um, so we're getting to the, the like hundreds that have tried this. It's yeah. still pretty small, still pretty so neat. It's a lot better than I th- I'm sure than taking up valuable and productive land for for graveyards, but still, that's I suppose you know. Depends what people want. Interesting. It's not legal well, here. Right. In, it's not legal here in Australia yet, is it? It's not legal. There's already pushes to make it legal because mm-hmm. people people want this. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. I can yeah, see. No, so I can see why. It's an, um, mm. yeah. All right. It's, tell it's, me. It's nice to have a, a new option. You know, for so long, all we've had is 
is, as you said, to burn or bury. Mm. Now yeah, exactly. we'll have compost. All right. Now tell me what drives sickness behaviours. Why, when we get sick, do we feel like going to bed or not eating much? Uh, strangely, no one seems to know why. We're trying to work it out. Yeah, it's this phenomena that doesn't just happen to humans. It happens to a whole range of animals. If you've had a pet that's sick, you might have noticed mm. some familiar behaviours, like you said, feeling sort of tired, not social, uh, don't want to eat as much, loss of appetite. Um, it also happens to mice, which is where the study I'm about to tell you happens. So, so researchers have definitely had clues as to why this sickness behavior happens. Cause we know when we get sick with a virus, a whole bunch of things are happening in our body to get rid of that infection. One of them is, is inflammation. Um, all different kinds of chemicals are, are popping out. You can mm-hmm. say of body. And, and one of those chemicals is, is one that scientists have really sort of turned their eye to when looking for this sickness behavior. They're called prostaglandins. And one of the reasons that researchers thought they might be important here is because these are the chemicals that aspirin and ibuprofen tries to sort of block the production of. And when you're sick, you might have taken these and they sort of help a little. And that's why we we think so. Even in mice, you can detect it when you give mice the flu and then aspirin or ibuprofen, their sickness behavior goes down. But that that just wasn't the full picture here. So, So what researchers have done to really try and answer the question, how does your brain know that you're sick? You know, if you have an infection in your throat or your airways, how does your brain then tell you you need to rest now? And what these researchers did is they looked for these prostaglandins. And I guess the first question was kind of, so where are they working in the body? And we know that they work sometimes a little bit in the brain, sometimes in our throat is what the researchers found. They found out that these chemicals could do their work in the throat. And so they took some mice and through some very fancy genetic work, basically disabled the the chemicals ability to work in the throat um how that how that happens is these chemicals you can think of them like a key and they need a lock in order to do their work in order to sort of um create the response they need to create and so these researchers developed mice that no longer had a lock in their throat. So these chemicals would be swimming around and they're like, I don't see a lock in your throat. I can't do my work. So they created mice like that. Then they infected them with influenza. And what they found is that their sickness behavior was was really reduced. So Mm -hmm. these mice were eating more, drinking more, moving around more. And to them, to these researchers, it told us the story that, that possibly what is happening in these mice and thus in humans is that when we get infected with the flu, let's say, it gets into our airways, then infects our throat, then these particular chemicals do their work and get a message sent into the brain that says you are sick. And they say these are the key. These these chemicals are Hmm. the key, which we didn't really know about that path before. We didn't know that it was the the, sort of cells in the throat Hmm. that might be sending this message on. Hmm. Okay, interesting. All right. Oh, and I should say, for the sake of science, that it's not all the prostaglandins doing the work. So the mice were still a little bit sick. Science, always more complicated than one chemical. Now, since we've been talking about death and illness and destruction and the end of things, how about this? 
Uh, we all know about the possible, well, not the possibility. We all know that asteroids do hit the Earth and have hit the Earth in the past. The trouble is if they're too big, that's the end of us. And how about this? NASA has now found an asteroid which has a small chance of hitting the Earth in not that far away. It's uh, Valentine's Day in 2046. Exactly. It's going to be a very romantic Valentine's Day. Sure, it's going to arrive with a bang. Coming to be. How, so, big, how big is this thing? This uh, very romantically named asteroid, 2023 DW, is almost 50 metres so uh, in diameter. So it's roughly the size of an Olympic swimming pool in length. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a bit of uh, sort of perspective, so the asteroid that uh, helped wipe out the dinosaurs was way bigger. It was around 12 kilometers. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, 240 times bigger. And when asteroids get that large, oh boy, can they cause trouble. But even the little ones can cause some damage. So about 10 years ago, a media that was less than half the size of this, this new one exploded over a city in Russia called Chelyabinsk. And it actually did cause quite a lot of damage. It blew out buildings, injured more than a thousand people. Uh, I, I spoke to a scientist who was there at the time, said it was very scary. Um, but in that case, we were quite lucky because the the rock ended up exploding over the city. If it had hit the city, scientists expected the damage would have been even worse. So they are watching this asteroid closely. But I should say that you know, as you mentioned, currently the researchers reckon there's a small chance of it hitting the Earth. NASA actually said in a tweet, a very small chance. It's about what they're currently pinning at one in 600. Uh-huh. But it's this rock has really just been identified over the coming years. And luckily we've got a few. Um, researchers will keep tracking it and getting a better count on its orbit. And I suspect that once we we do that, that margin is going to grow and grow. So that it'll go from very small to very, very, very small. And the reason that I think that is because that is historically what happens. We'll find okay. an asteroid. We don't have too many sort of if you think of tracking it as you kind of got pin, you've got a big drawing board and you're putting dots of like, okay, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there. The more dots you get, the more accurate it mm. is. And so often when you've only got a few points, you're like, well, all right, well, it could go there and it could go here and it could go into earth. But as you sort of refine it, that you get a more accurate picture. And we just know that space is huge and earth is tiny. So the likelihood of it hitting us, I think will go down, but we're mm. watching, we're watching. Exactly. And, exactly. and feel, you know, what we know from asteroids is the scary ones are actually the ones that we don't see coming. So Chelyabinsk, researchers did not know it was on its way until it literally blew up. Oh, we, oh, we can't worry about things we don't know about. <laughs> That's true. We have enough things to worry about that we do know about. Uh, let's leave the unknown unknowns. Indeed, indeed. Great to talk, Wendy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.